0: Hi there, Alexa here. I think it's my turn to choose a favorite episode um, to air before Two Psychologists Four Beers officially goes on hiatus. So I've chosen episode one hundred and two, destigmatizing mental health with Andrew Devendorf. Um, and just to give a little bit of background about this episode, this episode came about because um, on a previous episode. Yoel and I had been discussing graduate student admissions um, and in the process of this discussion we had revealed some of our blind spots when it comes to the ways that mental health stigma um, can seep into these decisions. Andrew brought that to our attention on Twitter and Yoel took the exchange as an opportunity to do an episode on mental health stigma with Andrew as our expert guest. For me it was really cool and eye-opening to learn about Andrew's work I actually now do a special topics class in my history of psych class um, where I focus on one of Andrew's papers. And it was also just really fun to get a chance to to know him a bit. Um, I remember saying to Yoel afterwards, we need to do more episodes like that. And uh, maybe that's a good segue uh, into saying some thank yous. So um, first, we've had... Many guests that I'd like to thank. Obviously, Andrew Devendorf is one of them, um, but also Danielle McDuffie, Jenny Cox, Lauren Coyce, Joe Simmons, Stefan Udenberg, Ayla, Yulia Rohr, Paul Bloom, and Jenny Gutzel. Um, And of course, I would also like to thank our listeners. Thank you for your support and for your feedback and questions. Um, and for generally just making this uh, podcast a really fun experience. Um, so, anyway, um, here's episode 102 Destigmatizing Mental Health with Andrew Devendorf. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did.
1: Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tullet. Alexa, we were chatting before we went on, and I'm being lazy with my beer selections, but you're being exciting with your beer selections this week. So do you care to describe what you're drinking and how you found it?
0: Um, I am drinking uh, beer from Cahaba Brewing Company, um, which is in Birmingham, Alabama, um, and it's called the Oka Uba IPA. Um, And it has a cool can that has sort of like a topographic map design on it. Um, I have used small, so I'm going to take
1: your word for that. Yeah.
0: um, You can trust me. I would never lie about can art. Um, Yeah. So that's what I'm going to drink today.
1: Nice. I still have the same Coronas that have been populating the back of my fridge for a while. And I apologize to you, to the listeners, to our special guest for being so boring That's right. We have a special guest this week. We're being joined by Andrew Devendorf. He's a clinical psychology PhD candidate at the University of South Florida. He studies depression, well-being, and mental health stigma. And in addition to his scientific publications, he's also written for the public in outlets such as the Huffington Post and The Conversation. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So first things first, what's the beer situation?
2: On my end, I'm very happy to be drinking this. Uh, It's an Elysian Space Dust. It's a go-to IPA of mine. It's 8.2% ABV, and I'm terrible at explaining what taste is, so I'm just going to read off the bottle. It says, the hopping is pure Starglow energy with (laughs) Chinook to bitter and late dry additions of Citra and Amarillo.
1: Wow, that's an excellent marketing copy. Congrats to them. Congrats to both of you for drinking better beer than I'm drinking this week. Should we crack them open? Sure. Let's do it. Okay, mine still tastes like Corona. Alexa, how's yours?
0: <laughs> uh, mine's pretty good. It's I like. I want to describe it as like slightly sweet, which if I heard someone describe an IPA as slightly sweet, I would think that sounds disgusting, but I think it's good.
1: Hmm. Hmm. Okay. And Andrew, you've had that one before, I guess.
2: I've had this one before, and I feel like I'm in space when I drink it. Space dust.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely um, what you want. Uh, so yeah, let's, let's get right into what we wanted to talk to you about. Um, so Andrew, you and I actually started corresponding uh, uh, on Twitter when you responded to an episode of ours that came out, I guess, a few months ago now, where we talked about getting into grad school um and mm-hmm. Alexa and I were talking about what our interviews for and I said something along the lines of well one thing that an interview can do is screen out somebody who's truly crazy and in retrospect that was you know not a great way to put what I meant and you very kindly reached out and said you know I understand like what maybe what you were getting at but that's a pretty stigmatizing way to put it and actually I have this research about mental health and stigma and uh, so, yeah, we started corresponding and uh, I got interested in your work and thought it would be great to have you on. So that's mainly what I wanted to talk to you about today. Um, and I guess, like, first of all, I want to make sure that I understand you know, the point that you were making to me when you wrote in about this episode. So I'm, I'm just going to quote you a bit so um, the listeners uh, can... Get get an idea of what you wrote to me. We, I think, also mentioned you and talked about this in follow-up a bit uh, previously. So this is a quote. My guess is that your intention with this discussion was to acknowledge that interviews can bring out certain problematic social behaviors among people, e.g. someone says or does something inappropriate. That is totally valid. We all have stories about graduate applicants saying or doing something inappropriate, and this can shape our impression of them. Importantly, everyone is capable of making social gaps and blunders. However, the statements in this conversation that was between me and Alexa refer to mental illness as something to be on the lookout for during interviews, which can perpetuate stigma amongst members in our field. So yeah, I think looking back on it, the main issue that I have with what I said is that I really conflated problematic social behavior. Like, mm-hmm. is somebody going to be a problem in the lab? Like, are they going to have a problem getting along with people? Or are they emotionally dysregulated? Something like that with mental illness broadly, which I don't think is a good reason to to rule somebody out as an applicant. Do you, is, is that a fair kind of summary of what your uh, what your response was to that episode?
2: Yeah. And um, I want to say I appreciate you for being open to my feedback. Um That's why I messaged you in the first place. I didn't think that you had an ill intention with your statement. Um, But I think in conversation, it can be easy to use the general label of mental illness or people who are mentally ill to represent um, maybe problematic behaviors, even though, as you read in the quote that I mentioned to you, um, we're all susceptible to those things. And I, from a stigma perspective, always want to consider Um, What are we doing when we're using the general label of mental illness to index these more descriptive problematic behaviors that we're all capable of? Um, Yeah.
1: Right. So really, if we're saying, you know, such and such is a deal breaker, we should be talking about the specific behaviors that we think would be deal breakers and why rather than using kind of a broad label.
2: Yes. Um, And to, um, we might talk about this in a little bit, but to go into some of the research that we've been doing um, at least in clinical counseling and school psychology fields, it's actually more the norm rather than the exception that somebody has a mental illness. And so, again, I'm not trying to be somebody who's like, uh, language, please. Um, I'm just trying to make the point of um, in our culture, people tend to conflate the broad term of mental illness with undesirable social behaviors.
0: I have sort of a follow-up question about that, Andrew. So, um, so it sounds like Yoel is saying, I meant to say we're looking at people's behaviors and, you know, I use this word crazy or whatever exact word he used. Um, I think I did say crazy. Yeah. Yeah. As like a, a proxy. Right. Um, and so I'm sort of wondering uh, is when we're selecting grad students and making decisions like this, should would should we be focusing specifically on behaviors and, and does, does it make a difference if the behavior is associated with, um, with a mental illness. So I'm sort of like thinking about the reverse. So does it change the way that we would consider somebody's um, behaviors if they might be associated with, um, with some kind of mental illness or mental health issue? Um, because you could also imagine that you might want to be more sort of like accommodating or forgiving if you know that something that like might not be the most desirable behavior um, is linked to... to uh, a mental health um, issue? I think
2: so. I think um, if somebody is acting some way in part due to their mental illness or the way that we define that mental illness, I think we need to consider what we're able to handle ourselves if you're a research mental mentor, but also um, how are we handling the inclusivity of these people in the field? Um, and I also just kind of want to address, I think, a misnomer that a lot of people have that I've talked to in academia and that if somebody has a mental illness, they're not able to function professionally or in an academic setting. Um, Again, even just talking about the term mental illness broadly is, I find a little bit problematic because we don't do the same thing when we talk about all physical health conditions, for instance. Like there are so many different types of mental illnesses and the way that we define them, you know, from depression, anxiety, substance use disorders, and they might interfere with somebody's ability to function um, overall in life, but it might not. It, that doesn't mean it also generalizes to their academic function. It could, and I think it's okay to be on the lookout for people whose mental well-being isn't, you know, at the point where they can function in graduate school. I probably wouldn't be on the side of uh, excluding them, but more of asking what types of accommodations can we provide
1: those people. Yeah. So you mentioned already uh, the prevalence of mental health challenges among uh, graduate students, and you've done some research on that. So what do the data show there about prevalence?
2: Yeah. So um, in a study with my colleague, Sarah Victor, and our pretty large research team, um, we administered a survey a couple years ago to um, clinical psychology doctoral students and faculty. And uh, we sent out about 9,000 emails extracted from programs from APA and CPA credit sites. Those are the accrediting bodies for these clinical psychology programs. And we somehow got a sample of about 1,800 respondents and we asked them a question. Um, Have you had a history of mental health difficulties? And uh, Somewhat surprising to me, um, about 80% of people endorsed having had a mental health difficulty at some point in their lives. Um, The highest rates of mental health difficulties that we saw, and again, this is a lifetime history, so people have had these at any point in their life, um, was depression, anxiety, and suicidal-related behaviors. Um, Don't quote me exactly, but I think 50% of our sample endorsed having a history of depression. And that might sound high. Um, but when you consider that we're also sampling, um, clinical psychology students and faculty, um, you have to remember that people might view experiences like subthreshold depression as also clinically significant, and they might also be more likely to report that. Um, and also we have to remember that, you know, being in academia and being in a graduate program, there's also higher rates of things like depression, anxiety. And so overall, we found, um... With the overall rates of mental health problems, they generally um, were similar to uh, epidemiology surveys of the general population. Um, however, more severe mental illnesses, so that those might be things like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, personality disorders, those were much less represented in um, clinical psychology.
1: So I'm curious whether you have any data on that prevalence of depression and anxiety, how much it's... Uh, selection versus grad school makes you anxious and depressed versus, well, maybe it's just because they're at the kind of close enough to the population base rate that you don't need either of those explanations.
2: Yeah. So we did find higher rates of depression, anxiety, and overall mental health difficulties among graduate students um, compared to faculty. So kind of what you're hinting at, there could be a few things going on. Uh, maybe the graduate students in our survey um, were more likely experiencing um, elevated depressive and anxiety symptoms. Again, we see that often in academia and psychology as a whole. Um, And so maybe the faculty that were responding, maybe they had these experiences, but they weren't as um, pertinent in their memory to report them. Um, Or another possibility, and it could be both, um, that people with mental health difficulties might get selected out of um, academic fields uh, long-term. So again, this you know pretty intense publisher parish culture that academia has and you all talk about, um, that could be another reason. Um, and then there's also cohort effects by which graduate students on average are much younger than faculty. And we see in epidemiology surveys across time that uh, younger generations are more likely to report having had a mental health difficulty and talk about it and endorse it.
1: Yeah, that definitely seems important, Alexa. How was your mental health in grad school?
0: Um, I would say that my mental health in grad school was pretty good. Um, I think that I had like very, I had a lot of um emotional support and um, financial support in grad school. So, uh, anecdotally, I would say that my um my experience was maybe sort of like less. Um, or like maybe more positive than average. Um, yeah, based on based on what I how I hear other people describe their experiences, and even like what I hear from students in our program right now.
1: Yeah, interesting. So, uh, Andrew, consistent, I guess, with um with your data. Uh, I did have an ADHD diagnosis in grad school, and it was sort of situational in that that was a kind of the first time I felt like I just couldn't keep up with the work and there was like so much going on that uh I felt overwhelmed and then I I mean I I haven't bothered to you know refill my prescriptions since, basically since grad school I guess because I I don't know I it's not like I'm less busy but maybe I came up with behavioral workarounds because I didn't yeah. really like being on the meds right so I wonder how much of Like it is a shock, right? Like you're you're really um, you have an intense workload. uh, You have new challenges. If you've been a good student, it can be kind of dislocating because all of a sudden it's like things are much harder. And so I can see all of those things kind of playing a role in, in catalyzing some of these challenges.
2: Totally. Can I interject and just commend you for talking openly about your ADHD and how you're also a really successful professor on a podcast who is totally able to function despite having those experiences?
1: (laughs) Well, yeah. Uh, Thank you for that. I'll I'll take moderately successful, but um, I I am proud of the podcast, and I feel like yes, uh, ADHD doesn't prevent one from having a having a podcast. Uh, No, I mean it's you know. I I feel like, um, reading your, your work, I was struck by the way that you write about mental health, both in your academic articles, but, but also in your pieces for the public, um, as something that doesn't need to define you. Um, and in particular, you have a popular article that's about, uh, thriving after mental health challenges that I found really interesting. So this idea that some people might have like clinical depression, for example, and then end up in the top quintile of well-being, right? So it's not like they they just got better and they're surviving. It's that they're actually really doing well. Um, and I, I thought that was an inspiring way to think about it and kind of interacted with this idea of like, well, there can be certain contexts that can be stressful and challenging. And then, you know, you maybe your environment changes for the better or you learn some coping strategies or, you know, maybe you get on medication and that can mean that those challenges can turn into actually doing really well.
2: Yeah, I think it's weird because historically in clinical psychology and psychiatry, there's just been this um, narrow focus on all the bad outcomes associated with mental illness. And that's totally understandable because we're defining it as a mental illness. So that makes sense. I'm not against um, trying to tr- help people through their despair or their impairment or their suffering. Um, and also, there seems to be this, like, lack of awareness or lack of interest in understanding some of the good outcomes that people have from these experiences. Um So, you know, in my experiences, I've had my own bouts of depression before, and, you know, through seeking help, I've learned a lot about how to deal with not just that, but other areas of my life. Um, And so, in the research that you're mentioning, we're kind of, we were asking that question of how many people have these um, mental health problems, and like you said, go on to not just recover, but thrive and build meaning and purpose from their experiences, Um, and so, we found that uh, the answer is not 0%. Um, It's somewhat of a straw man argument, but uh, I'm not over-exaggerating that when you talk to some other mental health providers, they have these really pessimistic views about the long-term course of mental illness. Um, And the data kind of support both ends. Um, Well, it, of course, depends on the specific diagnosis. But for depression, for instance, um, 50% of people with depression... Will have somewhat of a recurrent and chronic course of depression. And also, 50% of people with depression will never have a recurrence of depression ever again. And so, among those people who never have that recurrence, what percentage of those people also live um, really high-fulfilling and functioning lives? Um, And so, I also hope that more people get more interested in the positive outcomes after mental illness.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, the way that you are um, talking about initially like sort of the prevalence difference um, in terms of mental health uh, challenges among graduate students compared to, I think, um, like older practitioners or something like that. um, I think another possible factor that could be um, going on is... Like language that people are using, and so maybe people are more likely to use mental health terms um, mm-hmm. in like certain generations or among certain populations. And I mean, one one explanation for that could be that okay, people are just using these terms differently. But another could be that this is sort of like an increased awareness of the ubiquity of these kinds of experiences like anxiety and depression. And so instead of treating these as something that is experienced by a really small minority and it's something that's like very uh, self-defining and something that's very permanent, there's like this shift towards thinking of these things as something that are, like things that are widely experienced can change a lot over people's lifetimes. Um And yeah, and then also often maybe are um calibrated responses to people's experience right um so i think yeah i wonder um yeah how much of that shift is happening and maybe that shift is sort of like a positive reckoning with these challenges
2: definitely um i'll just pick a random over the last 50 years there's definitely been a ton of progress and um, increased awareness and identification of mental health problems and definitely reduced stigma um people are seeking help for mental health problems at higher rates than they used to, and also that's somewhat clashing with, um, you know, kind of the need for more mental health providers and care. Um, And also, it's somewhat specific to some of the more common mental health problems. So I would say that there's a lot more reduced stigma towards things like depression and anxiety, and that people Mm -hmm. are more likely to talk openly about those um, experiences. Um, And also, I think there's so much... Uh, more of a way to go like people are talking openly about them yeah but uh, are they able to access care for them um, mm-hmm. there's just so many barriers to getting mental health care and although people are even talking more about things like depression anxiety there's still uh, misperceptions that um kind of what we're alluding to, that if you get a diagnosis of depression, then you'll be depressed forever. Or if you get a diagnosis, then that means there's something different about you. Um, We don't want to hang out with you anymore. You know, there's still these beliefs out there um, that are impairing people. And then there's the other end of the mental health spectrum of people with, uh, you know, schizophrenia and personality disorders. Mm-hmm. And I think you all know, just kind of gets at the comment of why I reached out originally of um, uh, disorders like personality disorders are super stigmatized to where there are mental health providers who don't even want to give a diagnosis of of personality disorder because other clinicians stigmatize those conditions. Mm-hmm. And so my whole point is, what is the implication of uh, having these this prejudice towards these people, um, because then it just leads people to not talk openly about it. And then we're not able to address the problem and help them get access to care.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about this stigma specifically among researchers. So you have these data showing that mental health challenges are really, like I would say, the norm just descriptively. Uh, among, certainly among graduate students, right? If you're looking at the incidence of um, depression or anxiety. And yet, it seems that this is still, to some extent, stigmatized. So do you have data to speak to that question of how strong that stigma is and where it comes from?
2: Unfortunately, um, I don't have great data because paradoxically, in the mental health field, we have not really been concerned with documenting the prevalence of mental health difficulties or understanding the extent that stigma exists in our field. Um, I do know that there is literature that shows that uh, psychiatrists and clinical psychologists do hold similar stigmatizing beliefs about people with mental illness, Um, stigmatizing beliefs specifically being that, um, you know, people like with schizophrenia are more dangerous than other people um when in reality people with schizophrenia are more likely to be the victims of things like violence um you know of course with the caveat unless somebody is in an active psychotic ap- episode which of, but you know i'm speaking generally um and so i think i'm just curious as to why clinical psychology is so concerned with uh diagnosing other fields or making recommendations to reduce mental illness stigma in other fields, like among uh, police officers, firefighters, or physicians. And yet there's just silence when you talk to other clinical psychologists about our own mental health and well-being.
1: I'm just speculating, but it seems like it might be the case that clinicians are worried that patients might trust them less if they know that the clinicians themselves have struggled with, with mental health in one way or another. And I I mean, A, I wonder whether you share that intuition and B, I wonder whether it might not be if that is the case that that clinicians think that if they're right about that, because it seems like actually quite plausible to say, well, if I'm depressed and I know that my therapist has kind of gone through the same thing or struggled with the same thing, that actually like builds trust and faith in the the idea that the person is going to be able to understand my problems and help me so, yeah, do you have any data or or just intuitions about that?
2: Yeah, so the points you're making are why I want there to be a more formal study about um, the public's perceptions of psychologists with lived experiences, because I imagine that there are mixed perceptions. Um, I've spoken to patients who really admire when their um, provider is openly talking about um, their own mental health background and how they sought help at one point. Um and again when I'm saying mentioning this whenever we're in the therapy room it's not like about the provider we're talking about these like really light disclosures like somebody saying like i've been there you know or i've at one point you know had my own experiences Right. right. Um on the other hand when i've written some of my articles some of my online commenters uh have expressed some disdain in the sense of like why would i want to seek out a mental health provider who can't even deal with their own mental health problems. <laughs> And so I don't think there's great data for who and when um, disclosures are positive for. Um, But I can tell you if there are any concerns about providers having these experiences, like providers, um, I don't think uh, we immediately just jump to disclosing our own personal experiences. I think usually the perspective is uh, what is uh, to the benefit of the client and what is going on in the room at the time.
1: Yeah, I think that's a super interesting question that just deserves more empirical investigation. And I can see that uh there might be just heterogeneity that different people feel different ways about that. Yeah. Or or it might be that they're imagining different things. Um, right. So like if you imagine a provider who's going on and on about their own problems, yes, that's bad, right? Uh versus what you described, which is oh yeah, no, I get it, I've been there. Yes. It's very different. Yeah.
2: And I think in my work, I'm less concerned about what's going on in the therapy room with clinical psychologists talking about their own experiences. Um, I'm more speaking at a broad societal level of psychologists being comfortable talking about their own mental health publicly to maybe help motivate, inspire other people from seeking help. Um, I've, I always make the argument that if clinical psychologists who are the leaders of treating, understanding, and destigmatizing mental health problems can't talk about their own experiences seeking help, then how can we expect other people to do so?
1: Right. So you have uh, a paper, which is a, a, a sole-authored paper from 2020, uh, called Is Me Search a Kiss of Death in Mental Health Research, where you talk about... Uh, I guess, an occasion where you are penalized for motivating your interest in mental health by talking about your personal experience. So can you describe that experience a bit for the listeners?
2: Yeah. So um, for listeners out there, so just know I am in a clinical psychology program, so I'm not sure if this advice or wisdom has generalized to other areas. But when you want to get into a clinical psychology program, there's a lot of guides written, and some very explicit advice or warnings in these guides is that if you want to go into clinical psychology because you have a personal connection to mental illness, you should never disclose that. Otherwise, people might think you are not able to function effectively in graduate school, or if you have a personal connection to a research topic, maybe you might be more uh, biased or self-interested in the results. So I took that advice to heart when I was applying to graduate school. Um, And, you know, fast forward to uh, the day that I finally got into graduate school. And it was like one of the happiest days, biggest accomplishments in my life. Uh, And then fast forward a week later to where I had the worst event that's ever happened in my life. So I won't go into details. I've written about this, um, but I lost my brother to suicide. Um, He had been depressed Throughout his life, he had, you know, different bouts of depression, um, but one week later, after hearing, you know, some of the best news ever, the worst event ever happened to me. And one reason why I wanted to go into clinical psychology was because of my familial experiences and even personal experiences with uh, depression and um, the stigma that my brother experienced when he had depression. And so I viewed it as. I have this personal motivation um, to want to find the best empirical ways to reduce stigma and to understand depression and how to help people with depression. Um, So in my first year of graduate school, there was a research scholarship um, that I applied for, and it asked me to describe the development of my interests in my research topic. And in my very first paragraph, I wrote uh, a reference of one reason why I want to Understand depression is and reduce stigma is because I grew up with my brother who I lost to suicide, um, etc. And I didn't get the scholarship, whatever. Uh, I didn't think anything of it. But then later on, um, somebody who was on the scholarship committee reached out to me um, and they were really kind and offered me feedback. And they basically told me, Andrew, when the scholarship committee read your statements, they just had looks of disgust on their faces. Um, they said aloud, they said he has the, quali- the qualifications, the credentials. He has a few publications. Why does he feel the need to talk openly about his brother's suicide? And when I heard that news, uh, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I'm in clinical psychology and I'm not allowed to talk about losing my brother to suicide, like the most defining part of my life. And so that message was pretty explicit that if I was to continue in this career, that I would need to hide this like core part of my identity. Um, and I just didn't think that was right. And so that's kind of how I stumbled into this area of asking the questions about like, well, do other psychologists have experience with mental illness? And what are the perceptions of the field And what are the implications of the perceptions if they're negative, Um, not just for the research questions we ask, but for the care that we provide to our clients?
0: Yeah, Um, that's horrible. So first of all, I'm really sorry that you had that experience and also um, really admire that even in the face of like hearing directly from people that this was a bad strategy for your career, that you sort of like... Took it to the next level and decided, okay, I'm going to empirically study this and I'm going to, like, make this my mission to um, to give people space to talk about these kinds of, like, personal experiences. Um, so, yeah, um, I think that's amazing. Um, do you have a sense of what... Why didn't people like this in your personal statement? What do they want to see as a person's, like justification for their research interests? What's the perfect answer?
2: I don't know. I think when I received that feedback from, again, that trusted mentor, who I'm going to remain anonymous, um, I think the personal statement was probably meant to be more of a solely professional statement, which is how I wrote about it. Um, Again, my disclosure was not like me taking a whole two pages talking about my experience of of losing my brother, it was just a slight reference at the beginning that seemed to disqualify me um, from them even considering the rest of my application. So, one of the recommendations that we've had um, based on our talks with our research team is to clarify what the purposes of these personal statements are. Mm -hmm. So, inherently, we use the word personal statement and understandably, I think, um, applicants might think, oh, this is somewhat of a chance for me to talk about my personal interest in this area or how it might relate to my personal life in addition to the professional part. Um, But if you don't want any of that, you can just relabel what the statement's called. Call it a research statement or professional statement or provide explicit instructions about what you're looking for and what you're not looking for so that you don't have to rely on people getting mentorship or behind-the-scenes advice to increase their chances.
1: I, I also found this story to be just remarkable, because the natural comparison that occurred to me is if you had said, I want to stutter can- study cancer biology because I lost a family member to cancer. I don't think that would raise an eyebrow at all. Um, and so it does seem to be the product of thinking that this stuff is sort of shameful and that it's an overshare to talk about it. That at least was kind of one explanation that I came up with. But you've actually looked at this more systematically, right? You have a paper where you look at what you call self-relevant research um, in different areas, and you look at well, you know, what are people's reactions to people who do this kind of research?
2: Yeah, Alexa. To your point, uh, I received this feedback, and I was like, okay, I can just be silent for the rest of my life, or I can. Um, do a the biggest clapback of my academic career uh-huh. and just study this systematically. Um, so again, with my colleague, Sarah Victor, we did a survey about um, that asked, what is the prevalence of clinical psychologists who have personal connections to the research topic? And then secondly, what are the perceptions of self-relevant research on mental illness topics in comparison to physical illness topics? Um, And so it's the same sample that we talked about before. We got about 1,700 respondents who were faculty or graduate students. And what we did is we constructed um, a series of vignettes. So the vignettes described a hypothetical researcher, and we manipulated whether they did um, self-relevant research, meaning they had a lived connection, a lived experience with the research topic, and we manipulated the research topic. So for instance, a depression researcher who has a history of depression or a cancer researcher who has a history of cancer. Um, and again, we had to develop new scales to assess um, these constructs because, again, nobody's really studied this. Um, but we developed scales that captured what we call stigmatizing attitudes. So to what extent do you view this researcher as more biased, selfish, irresponsible, and um, But we also recognize that some people have more positive attitudes about people who use the lived experiences. So to what extent do people view this researcher as more um, motivated, insightful, or passionate about their work? Um, And we found in our sample of clinical psychologists, they were more likely to view um, self-relevant researchers on mental illness topics like schizophrenia, suicide, and depression more negatively than people who do self-relevant research on physical illness topics like cancer. And so that suggests to us, again, that clinical psychologists, I keep using the word clinical because of the paradox, they're also holding these relatively negative attitudes about the same things that we hope to destigmatize. And that just drives me nuts.
0: Andrew, I don't know if this is like too specific a question, but I was also looking at those data that you reported and I was wondering. Do you know or remember whether there was like a preponderance of, I think you call it strength-based responses versus stigmatizing? Like was one of those overpowering the other in general or on average?
2: So the way that we analyzed it, we um, did a factor analysis and we got the stigmatizing attitude subscale and the strength-based subscale. So clinical psychologists were more likely to score hot to report um, a self-relevant researcher on mental illness topics as more biased and irresponsible compared to a self-relevant researcher on cancer. Um, On the flip side, they were also more likely to view the self-relevant researcher on cancer in a more positive light. So if you have a personal history with cancer and you study cancer, clinical psychologists were more likely to view you as uh, more admirable, serving as a good role model, being a good example for, like, the academic community.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting to me. I mean, when I was asking before, like, what the ideal personal statement is, it's like, um, if you imagine just, like, completely removing self-relevance from a research field. um, So, for instance, if you take the topic of suicide and you imagine, like, a completely, um, I guess, disinfected or, like, Uh, completely impersonal reason for studying suicide like oh I think it's like an interesting intellectual problem like that sounds horrible to me imagining like a field of suicide researchers that approach it from that angle Um, and I think the same kind of issue crops up when you imagine sort of any field where self-relevant research might be common right so like in the LGBTQ community or Um, studying, like, racism and discrimination. Like, if you imagine these fields being dominated by people who have no vested interest at all in the topic, it's like you have a bunch of straight people studying what what it's like to be gay. You have, like, a bunch of white people studying racism. Like, it starts to become totally absurd.
2: Yeah, and then before you know it, uh, up until 1972 or 3, being gay is considered a mental illness. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because we don't have researchers with lived experience in the field.
1: Yeah, so actually, what Alexa brought up, I'm I'm curious about as well. This is sort of the natural kind of next step, I think, from this is okay. Well, beyond you know, clinical psychologists, how is self-relevant research judged? So I I could see that people might have similar negative reactions to let's say uh, members of stigmatized groups that want to study prejudice against their group. At the same time, like Alexa just mentioned, I do think there's a bit of a raised eyebrow to if you study bias against a group and you're not yourself a member of that group, that people might look a little bit askance at that. So I'm curious whether there's actually data out there on that already that you know of or what your intuitions are.
2: Yeah. So what you two are talking about will actually be the next steps of my dissertation study where I look at some of these questions. Um, Because you're right. So I think My hunch originally was that uh, researchers study more stigmatized topics with those stigmatized identities, maybe people would have more prejudice towards them. But then I was also considering social psychology. And for instance, you know, Alexa, you mentioned if you're gay and you study topics related to the LGBTQ community, um, you might be somebody who people actually are more likely um, to give credit to or, or there's more active conversations of promoting those voices, inclusivity of those things. Um, And same thing with people who are of racial and ethnic minority backgrounds and studying racial and ethnic minorities. So there's probably different effects depending on the field. Um, I think that's my point with mental illness. Um, In psychology, there's these ongoing diversity, equity, inclusion efforts. um, And I'm a proponent of that. And also, it seems like for some reason, people don't think about lived experience with mental illness as a part of that either. Um, I just wonder why
0: in your um in your paper uh, that was, I think published in twenty twenty two called uh, Stigmatizing Our Own Self-relevant Research uh, in parentheses me search is common but frowned upon in clinical psychological science. um I was sort of, so you asked people about whether they had at some point participated in in self-relevant research. Um, And it sounded like you did some follow up questions, like one of the questions that you asked was, was this about um, mental health or was this about physical health? Did you also get a sense of like, could people report in that space? um, Something like, yeah, I did research on racism as somebody who's experienced racism? Or was that like, not really? Did you not really have the capacity to get those kinds of responses in your in your work?
2: Uh, That is such a good question. I wish we got more specific data on the specific research topics that people said when they reported doing self-relevant research. What I can say is that um, of our sample of 1,700 graduate students and faculty, I think 27% endorsed doing self-relevant research on mental illness topics, Um, and of those... Of that 27%, 80% had a personal experience with mental illness. Um, We did not collect data, regrettably, about whether or not they did self-relevant research related to other identity-related areas. Okay. But in my dissertation study, we will follow up on that.
0: Yeah, there
1: we go. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe this is a a good time to take a quick break, uh, refresh drinks, and, and then we'll come back in a sec. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We are still on Twitter at 4BeersPod. We're going to be the last people on that website before it burns to the ground. You can at mention us there. You can DM us. If you would like to email us, the show's email address is 4BeersPod at gmail.com. That will go to me and Mickey and to Alexa. Finally, our website is 4Beers.com. You can listen to any of our episodes there. You can drop us a line there too. If you like, if you're enjoying the show, please just take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice helps other people find us. Alexa, have I left anything out? No, that sounds good. Amazing. Okay, so as far as beers, I'm like plowing through this Corona because it's super watery. Um, So I've, I've got a refresh can here. How are you guys doing? I'm drinking the same thing. Excellent. Andrew?
2: I'm drinking the same thing. Because remember, it's 8.2% and it's a Monday, you guys. Um, Wow,
1: yeah. Mm.
2: But if I finish it, I'm going to pull out this Pulp Friction. Um, It's by Motorworks Brewing and uh, it's a 6.8% ABV. And it might be how I cope with my performance today after this podcast.
1: It's sort of a (laughs) soft landing, I would say. And great name for the beer.
0: Yeah, very good. Yeah. Thank you for upping our beer game. Yeah, of- really. You're okay. like
1: taking it to, to a new level here for us. I would say.
2: <laughs> yeah, I've been a fan of the show for a long time, ever since you guys started
1: drinking beer. Wow. <laughs> okay. That's uh, <laughs> that is literally, <laughs> literally years. Uh, so. We've been talking already um, about the the stuff that you have published and you've kind of alluded to a bit, you know, that's going to, you know, we have these new studies in my dissertation. So I'm, I'm just curious to hear you talk a little more about like what you see as your future research directions, like what you're really excited to do now and, and what you're excited to do next.
2: Yeah. So overall, my work, um, I'm interested in understanding uh, long-term good outcomes after mental illness, but also ways to facilitate those good outcomes. And so I take a mental illness stigma approach. So stigma is a big barrier to care. It's one of the leading reasons why people don't seek help to care. Um, and when I say stigma, I think of it at kind of the different levels. There's a systemic level, which is like the policy level. There's the public beliefs about mental illness that may impact people with mental illness. And then there's this internalized stigma component. Um, And so for my career, I'm hoping to just understand ways to combat stigma to help people get that care so that they can thrive in the long term. And I think this area of self-relevant research and lived experience more generally is really important for clinical psychology because I feel like if we reduce the stigma within clinical psychology and that can have a trickle-down effect um, for reducing sigma elsewhere. Do you
1: you have a web page? We're going to put up, obviously, links to the papers that we talk about in the show notes, but if people want more, where where should they go?
2: I do have a website that my lovely girlfriend made for me on Google Sites, Um, and I'm also on Twitter. You can just follow me at Andrew Devendorf.
1: Yeah, and we'll have links to both of those in the show notes as well. So um, here's something that I think is a little more... I guess difficult for me personally. Uh, one of the things you talk about um, in in your writing is a story of Marsha Linehan, who's well known as somebody who really pioneered effective treatment for borderline personality disorder, and she's you know an incredibly influential um, figure in that area. And I I actually didn't know this, um, but she herself struggled with BPD, and that's part of kind of explicitly what she says as part of her motivation, right for for working on this. And it's inarguable that she's made this just enormous contribution. At the same time, if I'm thinking, what am I worried about? Like getting back to grad student recruitment, you know, BPD would be something where I'm like, wow, that is that's maybe too much for me, right? Because people with borderline they can be socially really uh difficult. And so I wonder like as, you know, what would be your advice to a potential advisor like at what point do you say, well this is too much, right? Um this is kind of more than we can handle as a lab and maybe you shouldn't be going to graduate school until you've worked on some of this stuff.
2: I think my, my advice would be to not make assumptions. So this goes back to, I'm pretty against people using a label of mental illness or even a specific diagnosis, like borderline personality disorder, as a proxy for how someone can contribute in graduate school or succeed in graduate school and contribute to academia as a whole. So Marsha Linehan is a phenomenal example. If we excluded her from our field, I don't know if we would have um, a great long-term effective treatment for borderline personality disorder. Um, And also, I don't want people to uh, make assumptions about people who might be acting in ways that are somewhat consistent with borderline personality disorder, assume that they have borderline personality disorder, and then treat them as so. Um, And I think that's an easy error for most people to make where um, they might be familiar with uh, the symptoms of a diagnosis and then kind of just assume that somebody has a personality disorder and then treat them differently. Um, bringing it back to mentorship, just being aware of what you're comfortable with, but also don't using these leading generalizations of does this person have borderline or not? Just, um, you know, bringing it back to the interview, is this for somebody who I can see myself working with for the next few years, um, regardless if they have a mental illness? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think that's a great point so we're like not qualified to diagnose whether somebody has, you know, a specific disorder, right? So really more focusing on the um manifest behavior seems much more kind of defensible and
0: fair to me. Alexa, what do you think? I mean, I think this was like partly the motivation of behind the question that I asked um earlier in the episode about okay, what happens when we see behaviors that make us nervous as potential advisors, and then we have this additional information um, about mental illness. And I guess, like, I uh, I think your your answer, Andrew, about sort of like thinking, okay, take take the label out of it, and just focus on what you have observed, and try not to like make assumptions beyond that, and think about what you're capable of as an advisor. That that sounds like a really good start, but then I also think that um, we should maybe be pushing ourselves as advisors to think about ways that we can accommodate more broadly. So, um, as you mentioned, Andrew, I think that people have generally gotten better at talking about things like anxiety and depression, and maybe hopefully, what has gone along with that is like a better ability to accommodate um some of the things that are associated with anxiety and depression right so like for instance as a teacher i see how um these things can affect students in ways that do affect their performance you know like it means like sometimes you know you're not submitting an assignment on time or sometimes you flake on a meeting and um, if we just purely say, okay, we're just like focusing on the behavior, we're ignoring the, the labels, then maybe we aren't sort of challenging ourselves enough to think about, okay, well, maybe, maybe we can, um, think of ways to be more flexible about these things or more accommodating. And, you know, like sometimes a student who is, you know, flaky on assignments, um, can like come through and be like stellar in these other ways, um. I don't know, Andrew, what do you think?
2: Yeah, and I also want to validate what you're expressing in that um, I've had students who have expressed to me through email that they have depression and that's why they didn't complete their assignment. And you can work with them to, you know, set new goals and try to help them get accommodations and provide accommodations. Um, when a couple students have reached out to me about that, uh, I'm just a graduate TA who has been a lab instructor, but I've also been somewhat um, confused about how to go about and navigate those situations. And I think if I'm confused, my guess is also the faculty who train me in this position are also confused. And I just don't think there is great guidance about how to weigh when somebody is in mental distress. This happens at the undergraduate level and graduate level. Um, in clinical psychology specifically, it can be really tricky Um because if a graduate, if a clinical psychology graduate student uh, is seeking help for therapy, it's kind of confusing where you get that because a lot of our training experiences are at these external practicum sites um, where we might get help ourselves. And so that's almost an added barrier for clinical students in that we're like, okay, well, I don't want to get my own therapy at this other place because I might want to apply for an internship there. Um, or I might know somebody who is completing an internship there. And I just think, again, the answer is not to have silence around the topic, but to have to confront these difficult conversations and to come up with better guidelines than we have now.
1: I mean, I totally get that you might be in this very awkward situation of like, I'm going to show up this place to try and get help potentially from one of my cohort mates or somebody that I know, which is obviously like not good. Um, I wonder... You know, as a supervisor, like we've been talking a lot about the selection end. And one thing that's very complicated here is that, you know, often we get more applicants than we can take, right? So it's actually quite competitive. Um, But I think also there's a lot to be said about well, once you have students in your lab and they might be experiencing some of that stuff, like how can you better be supportive of them or how can you destigmatize this? because on the one hand, obviously that's I, I think what we want to do as advisors is to be supportive and to communicate that if you are struggling with this stuff that that's normal and that you know lots of people go through that, Um, and that you can't talk about it. At the same time, you don't want to invade somebody's privacy. You don't want to put them on the spot to talk about stuff that's uncomfortable for them. So what would you say, like from the student perspective, like how can advisors navigate this stuff?
2: Yeah, I want to start off by saying that I don't expect people who are not mental health professionals to operate as mental health professionals. I think academics, especially professors, have so many responsibilities to balance And I don't think we need to add on that they need to be able to, like, diagnose or assess the distress of a student. Um, That said, there are basic psychological science techniques that people can do when a student discloses to them, or they might be suspecting that a student might um, need assistance. Um, And it it might be simple advice, but it goes a long way. So if somebody comes to you and they're like, hey, I'm experiencing depression, this might be... Impacting my work. If you're an advisor, you know practice uh, just validation. So, rec- first, you know, recognize your emotional reaction in the room. Are you immediately having like a reaction of disgust in the sense of like, like, why are they talking to me about this? Or one of curiosity and being like, hmm, why are they asking me about this and telling me about this? Um, and two, just uh, providing that person the compassion. And space for them to talk about what their goal of their disclosure was so that then you can make a game plan and help them navigate the next steps. Um, I think people underrate how far a compassionate and validating response can go to mentoring a student. Um, I say this because I'm in this line of work and people have opened up to me about horror stories about when they've talked to their advisor about having um, mental distress or even a close connection to mental distress. Um, and we write about this some of in uh, the commentary. And I won't go into specifics because uh, we can put the papers
1: online, but
2: um, it's kind of sad to hear the, the the bad experiences.
1: Alexa, is this something that you've had to deal with an adv- as an advisor? And have you, you know, what do you do?
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was thinking, you know, as we were talking earlier about um, – well, when you ask the question you all about how we can accommodate students, I have generally, I think my students um like see me as a very nice advisor, like a not very strict advisor. and I'm shocked to hear this. Yes, Alexa. right. Um, and I have like sometimes taken that feedback, and sometimes students have said explicit to me explicitly to me like you should be harder, like you you should be stricter or something like that. That would be helpful. Um, but I've sometimes really regretted that in the context of, um, yeah, just like not having the full picture behind, um, what's going on in people's lives. So sort of like been, you know, uncompassionate when, uh, like a student has been like struggling with deadlines or struggling with their work, um, and realizing later I'm lucky that my students or at least I think sometimes they talk to me about these things and I've had I've had a student tell me like I felt like you you know weren't very supportive when I was going through this really hard time like uh, you know you this was like a time you chose to be like strict and you missed the fact that you know I was really struggling um and so I just think that you know it's so easy to to not realize what's happening um, behind the scenes in people's lives and um, and these things also compound, right? So like if you are feeling depressed and anxious and you are struggling to get things done and then your advisors annoyed with you, then it's just like makes everything worse and, you know, uh, there's like sort of a snowball effect. So, um, yeah, I don't like I don't think that's a particularly... Helpful answer, but i um, I definitely have this has been something that's like very much on my mind as an advisor, and yeah, sometimes I don't think that I've responded as well as I could have.
2: I think it can be really helpful as an advisor who hears maybe a disclosure from their student to just consider what would be an effective way to deal with this situation. Um, if an advisor has a bad reaction, or an unsupportive reaction to a student's disclosure and they tell them it's something that's unprofessional and they should just, you know, deal with it on their own time. Like that's not effective to giving that student the support and resources they need to then succeed. And then that can also lead to more strain between the student and the advisor. And so I'm just going to like hit on the mark of like just having a validating, compassionate response can just go a really long way to building that relationship and rapport with that student.
1: Alexa, do you find that students spontaneously bring up with you, you know, I've been struggling with this and that's why this isn't done even though I said it'd be done? Or do you think that they're reluctant to say that?
0: I do think that my students, it depends on on who you're talking about. I think within my lab, I think students do say that. Um because I think that my students have set like a precedent for that. So that's sort of like become a norm. Um, with students I know less well, like undergraduate students, um, I, I'm really not sure. I mean, I do hear students say things like that sometimes, but I don't know if if students are always telling me about that. I'm sure they're not.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's so tough with the undergrads because like with a grad student, you have a personal relationship. Hopefully you have some basis, like Andrea said, of like, trust between the two of you such that they could like bring that up with you. but honestly like given the amount of undergrads that I teach, like I'm not qualified to be a therapist. like I can you know hear them and I can tell them, wow, that sounds bad and you should go to mental health services and they can work on this with you or get you an accommodation but other than that I'm just like I don't I don't know I'm I shouldn't try to solve this for them like I I'm not qualified to. That said, <laughs> I actually like the undergrads don't typically bring this up with me. And I wonder if this is like a gender difference or what, because uh, apparently, so like a, a graduate student of mine who's a woman, she also teaches the Scarborough undergrads, and they're constantly like telling her about their struggles to an extent where I'm like, look, you just cannot be there for them in that way, right? You have to refer them and move on. Like it's just eating too much of your time. And so I wonder as like, uh I hate to say this but middle-aged man if they are just like, not not willing to talk about that stuff with me.
0: Yeah, I imagine that like, students are reading like a lot of different cues about, you know, who is like going to be receptive to them um to them like talking about more personal stuff. I'm sure they use gender as a cue.
1: And I'm just glaring at them furiously the whole time too and maybe that's <laughs> putting.
0: Yeah.
2: Gender might be a thing. I also think just whenever I've been an instructor, and I instantly say I'm a clinical psychology graduate student and I'm interested in depression and reducing stigma towards depression <laughs> and talking about it openly, then it's like people, half the room is
1: like, "Hey, <laughs> yeah.
2: I get a line at the end." Um, but I think again, uh, going back to what I'm not saying, like I don't think professors should be in the position to have to provide that level of care and support. Um, I do think having boundaries with students is really important and maybe modeling the professionalism of the extent that, you know, it's okay to talk about and reach out for help and you don't have to give your life story and go to excruciating detail. That's a little bit much. Um, I think there's a balance there.
1: Yeah. And Andrew, I mean, to your your point earlier about the the prevalence of this particularly in younger cohorts like at least where where I'm teaching it really seems to be worse every year and I've heard from people at mental health services that they're just completely overwhelmed they just don't have enough people it's like lines out the door so this really is like a problem that like we're not possibly going to be able to solve and that even the school doesn't really right now seem to have the resources to meet the needs that are out there
0: yeah definitely i've i noticed just in terms of uh, undergraduate students i have in my classes who are registered for accommodations um so for i guess for those who are not familiar with how the system works um usually uh, students who have any kind of um mental health related or disability related um, factor that could affect um the way that they uh, the, the accommodations that they need in a class they'll go to the office of disability services Um, And they'll work with them to come up with the accommodation. So common things are things like um, the student can have extensions on assignments or the student can have uh, more time on exams or um, the student can use assistive technology when they're in classes um, as a way of accommodating various things. And um, the number of students that I have in my classes that are registered through ODS, just like. Um, Yeah, it goes up and up and up each year. It's like becoming um, a really big proportion of my students, Um, which back to like our previous sort of conversation about the way that the dialogue about these things is changing. I mean, one way to think about this is like that these challenges are dramatically increasing for students. And I think that's very possible. Um, Another way is to think like we're, we're only sort of like becoming more aware of them or better at acknowledging them now.
2: Yeah, and universities are a really unique setting in that for a lot of people, it's their first time being an adult, and it's their first time being in an area, an environment where they can seek professional services, um, usually at like a reduced cost. Um, Because, you know, when you're an adolescent, you're really dependent on your parents, and your parent has all the rights for you to get access to care. But when you're at a university, you know, you usually have access to like a university counseling center.
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, I Alexa, it's exactly the same situation here. It's the the number of students with accommodation just seems to go up every uh every semester mm-hmm. and we have an office that deals with this and I think deals with it very efficiently, but still when you have, you know, a large proportion of the class has some sort of accommodation, it's just the overhead of running that. You know, it's really challenging to do that. Um and there has been you know, times where I've kind of had to negotiate, you know, well, I want to do this in my class, but for the people who have accommodations, how exactly is that going to impact them? And how can I do that in a way that like respects the need to accommodate the people who have the accommodations, but doesn't compromise the experience for people uh, who don't. And so it is like, it it really is a difficult set of issues that like, like it or not qualified or not that we kind of have to deal with as instructors, like that I never really imagined would be you know, a, a big part of, like, how I teach.
2: Yeah. I think based on this discussion, some advice I would also give, um, again, non-clinical faculty. Um, I've run into the experience where I've worked with professors who almost, like, um, kind of talk some smack when students express having accommodations due to, like, mental health concerns, Um And I think my perspective is just, like, leave that to the accommodations office. Like, if a student has an accommodation and they've gotten it, like, somebody else has determined that that's appropriate for them, and it's not really on you, the instructor, to make the determinations for you to kind of adhere to that request, whether or not you agree with it or not.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's the amazing thing about, um, at UA, it's called ODS. I don't know if that's the same everywhere. It stands for Office of Disability Services, but um yeah that that definitely feels like something that is above my uh expertise level is like deciding what is an appropriate accommodation for a student I mean that could involve diagnosis and things like that um so I very much appreciate that experts are the ones who do that and they just tell me this is trust us what is appropriate for this student and I can follow those rules but yeah I mean um yeah it can end up being challenging for big classes um, it's also sort of an interesting thought exercise or, I mean, uh, practice exercise in terms of thinking about ways that you can structure your class differently to, um, I guess like not rely so heavily on these things that might be affected by, um, accommodations or to be just sort of more flexible and allow for people to, to perform well in a class in various ways. But, I don't know that that is easier said than than done I in my experience
1: yeah that's right and that's that's something like you know as I was saying just a minute ago where we really don't have real experience or training and how to how to think about that and how to do it and there's trade-offs can be hard i I mean it's it's the same way you know here where if the accessibility office says you know do X y and z I mean it's like a legal requirement that we you know, do the accommodations, right? So it's not like we're going to push back and argue about that. But then in, in a bigger picture sort of way, it's like, well, how do we design these courses such that we're not like compromising core elements of them and at the same time we're abiding by the accommodations that we need to abide by. I don't I don't think that for me that's really an entirely solved problem at all.
2: Um so I know this might be switching gears, but so yeah. I'm on this podcast and I want to hear both of your opinions about um self-relevant research so the topic that we touched on earlier um and how do you view when somebody in psychology has a personal experience with their own research topic
1: Alexa you first
0: yeah I mean I was really excited about um about having you on because I'm so interested in this topic interested in like a way where I have very little expertise and I haven't done any empirical research on it um and I guess like I think that I was trained to think that maybe to have some of the stigma that you're describing. So for me, I I have never been in the clinical world, so it's not so tied to clinical research. But I have also heard the term me-search in a derogatory way. And um, and yeah, maybe not so much about clinical topics, but about other topics. And so yeah, trained in such a way where... um, the idea was that the researcher should be, like, objective and have um, no sort of, like, vested stake in a topic. Um, and my views of that, on that have changed dramatically, partly for reasons that have come up on this episode, right? Like, if you imagine what a field of research looks like that is, like, completely divested of people who um, have a personal stake in the topic, it becomes sort of perverse and absurd. Um and so, I don't think that like everybody has to have a personal stake in a topic to be a good researcher on that topic. But
2: uh, of course, yeah.
0: Um, but yeah, I think that it can be really valuable. And it seems clear how it could provide um, a, like a perspective um, that is needed on a topic. So, I guess in general, I think this like notion of being sort of an unbiased researcher is a little silly. And so if we just sort of discard that and we treat everyone as having their their own perspective, um, then like more perspectives seems valuable. And particularly having a perspective of somebody who's invested seems really important. What do you think, you all?
1: Well, you know, we have this longstanding disagreement about the unbiased researcher ideal that we have not yet settled. But I think that there's this strange tension where some classic work in social psychology really emerged from the strong personal connection that the researchers had to the topic. So if you think of um, the post-World War II work on the authoritarian personality...
2: Oh, I I thought you were going to mention Stanley Milgram, who also did his research on obedience in part because of the horrors that happened during the holocaust but go on i want to hear your example
1: yeah no i mean it's it's all part of the same thing so you know milgram was an american but there were also uh researchers who fled the nazis so adorno being kind of the most famous um who then were really interested in understanding fascism and i don't think anybody would say you know that's invalid or we're going to take their research less seriously because it came from this personal experience with this bad thing that they then wanted to understand. At the same time, it, I got you know the same sort of advice about how to write a personal statement, that it's like, you're definitely not supposed to talk about uh, personal mental health struggles because it makes you look weird or flaky. And uh, those quotes that you have in your paper, where they say "don't do that," that very much resonated. Right? I got the same advice, even though I was applying to social personality programs, where it's less relevant. But they're just broadly like, "don't say that." You know, you struggle with any of this stuff because it just like marks you as somebody who doesn't understand the rules. And I wonder if it becomes self-perpetuating in that way that like the people who uh, who are more kind of tapped in read that and they play by the rules and the people who aren't don't and say that stuff and so it really does become a way to distinguish the people who've you know had some experience or mentorship from the people who haven't but not because it's a valid signal necessarily of your ability to do good research just because you're tapping um like how much do they understand kind of the hidden curriculum of how to get into grad school if that makes any sense
2: Definitely I haven't written about this formally but I have this hypothesis that psychology as a field is somewhat insecure and that for so long uh, I think people have these negative associations with Freud and lacking like a formal scientific approach and then you know around uh, meal and uh, the development of like kind of modern psychological techniques we really tried to take on this more positivist stance in finding the objective truth um, and so really practicing objectivity in the sense that we remove all of our biases as humans and we practice empiricism. Um, and I think that's fine. I think that's okay. Um, I just think then a long time there's been this like misconception that then if you have a personal connection that automatically like disqualifies you um, and makes you more biased. And I think a point that I like to make is that you can have like a lived experience and still practice the scientific method effectively, like I view the scientific method more as like a skill or a toolbox for what we can do. like I can have lost my brother to suicide and be personally affected by that experience, and I can still desire high quality data and empirical research right that 's exactly
1: right, I think like I would really distinguish between your personal motivation for being interested in a question. And then the way in which you imp- approach the question empirically, and I, I think that you can have a strong like personal connection to a topic, without it predetermining the conclusions that you might come to on a on a scientific question.
0: Yeah, and the opposite is true, right? Like you can have no personal question to, or sorry, no personal connection to a topic. Um, but be a terrible researcher and you know like p hack your data and fabricate your data and you know like you don't need a personal connection to want publications and you know um and you could also imagine that like somebody who has a personal connection to a topic might be even in some cases even more invested in getting the most accurate data they possibly can although i'm you know that's uh you know that's just speculation. But I I like Andrew's point about, you know, you can, you can focus on practices, like you don't have to make inferences based on somebody's personal views.
2: Yes. And in my conversations when I talk about this work with people, like, again, this is just my experience, but people overwhelmingly have had the response like, well, aren't people with personal experience more biased? And I'm just like, what about a psychologist who develops their own theory and then does a study to provide support for that theory? Like mm-hmm. they're s- self-invested in that work and doing that. And are we just not going to allow that person to do that research? Um, so I just think the whole thing is silly, but I also want to validate both of your experiences because I was also trained in that kind of method. I just shared that I also received that same advice And I think what was really harmful is I've actually also passed along that advice in the sense that I've told people myself not to talk about their own connections to the research and not to talk about their own personal mental health history. Um, And this is one reason why I think I'm going to continue this work, because I think change needs to come from the top in terms of academia is a real hierarchy and people listen to the leaders at the top. And so... I think that can have these really bad you know feedback loops if there's advice coming from the top and then it perpetuates at the bottom.
1: Yeah. I I think that you the both of you are totally right that you know we sort of overlook because it's just so understood that it's the case that people are super biased just by the incentives of wanting to get a job and wanting to get tenure and wanting to defend their preferred theoretical perspective, right? And I I don't think anybody's going to say that's good, but we accept that people have these motivations that might lead them to do bad science and then we say, okay, well, that motivation is in some part necessary uh, or we we have, we can't get rid of it, you know, people being people, but we can do what we can to mitigate it to try to prevent, that motivation from interfering with people doing good science. So we would demand certain practices that you know we think make uh, studies more trustworthy, For example, not trying to get rid of the motivation, but instead trying to put guardrails into place such that that motivation doesn't lead them to produce untrustworthy findings. Yeah, right. Well, it's been such a pleasure having you on. And uh, I just want to give you the opportunity to throw anything else you want out there, um, like anything that listeners should know, anything about you that you would want them to check out, anything at all.
2: Yeah, I appreciate being on here and talk about these complicated issues. Um, I'm hoping that this conversation encourages other academics and other departments to have these open discussions. Um, I think that's kind of just my hope. Um, If you're interested in... Uh, my other work, you can follow me on Twitter. I try to be active as much as I can at Andrew Devendorf. Um, and I'm also very passionate about writing about psychology for a popular audience. So, um, hopefully you can read some of my pieces.
0: Awesome. Thanks so much, Andrew.
1: Yeah, thanks.
2: Cool. Thanks for having me.